By way of overview, here we are yet again for our third summer doing Wednesday worship. Very excited. Time flies when you're having fun. Um, The last two summers, well, the first one was systematic theology, and then the second was uh, heresy. And so if we have false doctrine and then, or right doctrine and then false doctrine, then um, my thought for this summer was to do something that is um, sort of an overview of the Christian faith for what a new believer needs to know. Now, there's certainly quite a bit of overlap from the previous two summers, especially the first one, not, not as much the second one. But nevertheless, picking various topics and um, and issues that would be essential for a Christian to consider, we have topics such as tonight's, what is a believer? If we're talking about basics for a believer, we should first consider what actually is a Christian. And then secondly, the Bible, because a Christian isn't going to go very far without the Bible, and they need to know things like, what is the Bible? Where we got the Bible? How the books of the Bible made it into this leather-bound book in our hands, how to interpret it, uh, what the word hermeneutics means, and the difference between hermeneutics and homiletics, and various other fun things. Um, has the Bible been perverted? Has it been changed? Was there, there a big conspiracy in 1946 to make Christianity anti-gay? Those kinds of things, uh, considering the Bible. Uh, the third lesson is on prayer, the fourth lesson on the church, the fifth on suffering, the sixth on the spirit realm, so that would consider both uh, the Holy Spirit and our relationship to him, as well as um, evil spirits, um, Satan, the demonic, things tied into that category. Uh, if you've ever wondered, can a Christian be demon-possessed? Can they be demon-oppressed? Can What does Satan have to do with us? Well, that would be the, the lesson for that. Uh, after that, we have a lesson on church history, not PBC's history, but the history of Christianity. And that will more than likely be, a, well, definitely an over, overview format, but most likely um, select people throughout history and discussing briefly a number of, of prominent people that you need to know about as kind of key figures in church history. Uh, week eight, then, is how to grow spiritually. We might skip that lesson because it will be super redundant, because if you're getting all these other lessons, that's how to grow. Uh, but nevertheless, to have a concise message tied together about how to grow um, could be helpful. And then the ninth week would be on the Christian life, so practical matters, um, just about like everyday things. And then week 10 would be miscellaneous, extra, or Q&A. So if there are questions that come up during the summer or things that were like, whoa, we need to cover that, um, then that can be inserted then into that final lesson. Now, for tonight's lesson, considering basics for believers, we're starting with the question of what is a believer? And... Um, I would like you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. Even if this is a bit a bit springboardy, it, it is still nice to start with a passage of Scripture, even if we launch off of it and don't necessarily spend a ton of time in it. Um, Mark chapter 4 is the parable of the soils, or some would say the parable of the sower. It says... 
And again, he began to teach by the sea, and a great multitude was gathered to him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. Then he taught them many things by parables and said to them in his teaching, listen, Behold, a sower went out to sow, and it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Some fell on stony ground, where it did not have much earth, and immediately it sprang up, because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Another seed fell on the good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up, increased and produced some thirtyfold, some sixty and some a hundred. And he said to them, he who has ears, let him hear. But when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable. And he said to them, to you, it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, all things come in parables so that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in the hearts. Likewise, these likewise are the ones sown on stony ground, who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness. And they had no root in themselves, and so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Now these are the ones sown among the thorns. They are the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things entering in choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. But these are the ones sown on good ground. Those who hear the word accept it and bear fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixtyfold, and some hundredfold. So I have here an image of the parable of the sower. Um, I've circled them to help make it easier to distinguish which one we're referring to. So first, uh, in the yellow circle, we have um, the soil that is the path. So uh, we often call this the parable of the sower, but it really should be the parable of the soils because the sower is the same. The message is the same. The, the gospel preached is the same in each case, but what's different is the ground. So the first one is the path, and the result of the word being preached, the birds eat it, take it away, and it is gone. This represents a non-Christian. Secondly, we have in the orange circle, the rocky places. In this spot, this soil, as it were, um, the, the seed of the word goes down into it, but then grows quickly and is scorched by the sun and the plant dies. This one also symbolizes a non-Christian. Now, when I was growing up, I used to be very confused by this, and I thought, oh, well, maybe this is, this is the carnal Christian. This is the one who professes faith and then falls away, and they are a Christian, but they fell away. Well, 
this does represent that so-called carnal Christian. It represents the one who professes faith in Christ and then falls away, but this is not a true believer. The third is the, the um, red circle, and that symbolizes the, um, the thorny ground where the, the word of God is planted in it, but it, it grows up and is choked out by the cares of this world. So think with me about those people that you know who were raised in the Christian home, then they moved to New York for work or college or some grand venture of theirs, and then they encounter or experience the joys of New York City, and suddenly they say, actually, I don't want to go to church. Oh, it's COVID outside. I'm not going to go. Two and a half years later, oh, it's still dangerous outside, but let me go to all the clubs. Let me go to all the things on Friday night, Saturday night, and then I'm sleeping in on Sunday morning, and just drifting further and further away. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm so busy with my work, I can't make it to anything church-related. And this pattern continues, and the person drifts and drifts and drifts, and then the parents call me, Pastor Andy, can you get my son to come to church? Well, no, I can't. I could invite him, but I can't make him come. I could even call an Uber, but I can't make him come out of his house and get in the Uber. This third one represents that type of person, and I'm sure many of you know folks like that. The fourth one is the only one in these four soils that re- represents the Christian. Or, if you want to speak in terms of you know, mixing your metaphors, uh, the elect, the one that God is or has saved. It is the good soil. It's not because they're more virtuous in and of themselves, but that is a whole nother topic and another conversation. But uh, this is the soil where the seed goes down, bears a crop, and then uh, the fruit is 30-fold, 60-fold, or 100-fold. So um, hold that in your mind. It will be relevant later on. Now let's go to the next slide. Unfortunately, I can't have both the PowerPoint and my notes here side by side because I haven't figured out how to do that on an iPad. But first off, what is a believer? When we consider what a believer is, what, what a believer is a Christian. But we should consider first the opposite of that, um, things that do not make a person a Christian. In other countries, they have very distorted perceptions of America, and particularly the Middle East, they think that America is a Christian nation, and that if you are an American, you are a Christian. And I would assume they don't understand this whole four soils thing, and would just assume all four types of soils, those are all Christians, and those are all real, and that's why we hate America, because all of these people are total pagans and heathens, but they're Christians. So we'll start off by saying someone is not a Christian because of their location of birth, because of their national origin, or because of their ethnicity. But beyond that, a person is not a Christian because of their parents' faith. Your parents being a Christian doesn't mean that you're a Christian. You're not a Christian because of your baptism. Do you know the percentage of America that has been baptized? It's very, very high. But all of those baptized are not Christians. Further, being a member of a church does not make you a Christian. There are true believers who are either not, not church members or not yet church members, and then there are church members who are not true believers. Uh, 
So the fact that your name is on a church membership role does not mean that you are guaranteed access to heaven. Beyond that, moral behavior, being good, being a good person does not make you a Christian. Having an emotional experience, hearing a preacher preach a powerful sermon or listening to a message on YouTube and then crying and having this emotive experience, that does not make you a Christian. Political views do not make you a Christian. Being conservative does not make you a Christian. Having internal feelings, oh, I feel like a Christian. I I feel positive towards Jesus. That makes me a Christian. No, that does not make you a Christian. Having a mystical experience does not make you a Christian. Do you know the number of religions in this world that have mystical experiences? Most all of them do. They are feeling real things. So the fact that you feel something or don't feel something is not an indicator of whether or not you are a Christian. Further, a transformed life is not what makes you a Christian. All sorts of things change lives. Diets, multi-level marketing schemes, personal trainers, bowling leagues, jobs, all of these things will change your life. So the fact that you don't do a certain thing anymore that you used to do doesn't mean you're a Christian. Further, belief in God does not make you a Christian. Belief in God, being a theist, being a person who believes there is a God or a deist, that does not make you a Christian. As James says, the demons believe and tremble. Good works do not make you a Christian. The presence or absence of, a sh- of assurance does not make you a Christian. You can be convinced that you're a Christian, and that doesn't make you a Christian. And you can be completely convinced that you're not a Christian, and that doesn't mean that you're not a Christian. The presence or absence of assurance does not determine whether or not you're in or out. Further, the progress or degree of sanctification does not determine whether or not someone is a Christian. You can be the most outwardly pure person in this room and be trusting in your own righteousness and be as righteous as the Pharisees and be on your way to hell. Further, you can be the worst gang member, drug trafficker, kidnapper on the planet and get saved And as you're sharing your testimony, you're using the most vile, sinful language, but nevertheless, you are truly saved. So your degree or progress of sanctification is not what makes you a Christian. And further, your resolutions, determination to be a good person or to stop sinning or to do better or try harder, these things do not make you a Christian. Now, What is a Christian? A Christian is a believer. Getting to this list on the screen, a Christian is a believer, and they are a believer in a particular set of doctrines. In the same way that a Yankees fan has a particular baseball team that they root for, so a Christian has a particular person that they're believing in. A Christian is a person who believes that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the prophecies made concerning the Messiah 
in the Old Testament, such as that Jesus would be born of a virgin, that he would be sinless. A Christian believes that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God. A Christian believes that Jesus lived a sinless life. A Christian believes that Jesus died as a substitute for our sins under the curse of God. In other words, a Christian believes that God killed Jesus, his son, to save you and me. And if a person does not believe that, they're not a Christian. Even if they call themselves Professor So-and-so who teaches at a prominent seminary. If they deny substitutionary atonement, They could be a lot of things, but a Christian is not one of them. And further, last but not least, a Christian is one who believes that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. They believe that Jesus truly rose, not metaphorically, not mystically, but truly and bodily. His body, his human body came out of the grave, really and genuinely. So this is what a Christian believes. A Christian is a believer in these things. Let's go to the next slide. And we will consider some things that are helpful for a Christian's belief. The first that we need to talk about is the law-gospel distinction. So there is the law and there is the gospel. But we need to understand that the law is not the gospel and the gospel is not the law. There's a distinction between them. There is what we first have, a do versus done distinction. The law tells you, do these things, whereas the gospel tells you, these things have been done for you. This is the difference between an imperative and an indicative. An imperative, which is a command, like play the piano, vacuum the floor, turn the lights on. These are all commands. These are all instructions. Things are supposed to do. Versus an indicative, which is something that is done for you. Law equals commands. Law commands are tied to merit and works. The law demands perfect, exact, entire, perpetual obedience. We have the acronym PEEP here. Our friend Mike Abendroth identified that for us so that hopefully whenever we see PEEPs in the grocery store or around Easter time, we remember perfect, exact, entire, perpetual obedience. That's the demand of the law. That's the requirement in order to earn heaven. You must be perfectly righteous. You must be exactly righteous. You must be entirely righteous without any unrighteousness in you at all. And you must always be righteous in these perfectly, exactly, and entirely kind of ways. Now, how is that possible? The story of the rich young ruler comes into play. The rich young ruler The message that follows, that interprets that for us, is that with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. In other words, with God it is possible to be saved. That verse that says with God all things are possible is not a verse to use for hiking Mount Everest. It's to be used to describe the possibility of your salvation. Now, this raises the question of salvation by works. If the law demands perfect, exact, entire, perpetual obedience, we need to recognize the only way of salvation is by this perfect obedience, but you don't have this perfect obedience, but Jesus does. So that tricky little way of saying, oh, you're saved by works. Yeah, you're saved by the works of Christ, not the labors of your hands. 
could fulfill the law's demands. You don't have perfect righteousness. You don't have perfect works to offer up to God. So this is, first off, law. Secondly, we have gospel. What is gospel? Well, it means good news. So if I ask you in a membership interview, what is the gospel? One of the things you should say is, well, it means good news. It's a gift. It's not a command. It's not a command to repent. It's not a command to believe. It's not the message that even God created the heavens and the earth. Those are all true things, but it's not the gospel. The gospel is not your response to the gospel. It is not the prerequisites to the gospel. But the gospel is a particular message that comes right in the middle, which is the work of Christ. The gospel overview is found in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel, that Christ died for our sins, was buried and rose again. Any other answer is wrong. Nothing else is the gospel. I've been at conferences full of seminary professors and students and preachers and pastors, and the man giving the lecture walks around the room with the microphone and asks professor after professor after professor, hey, what's the gospel? And they give all sorts of convoluted answers. But he's looking for one answer. And that one answer is that Christ died for our sins. And he rose on the third day. That's the gospel. Nothing else is the gospel. Now, in terms of a law gospel distinction, this gives significant theological implications and hermeneutical implications. So when you're reading the Bible, hermeneutics is this science of interpreting scripture. You need to recognize and remember the law gospel distinction. So when you're reading, let's say, the Sermon on the Mount, you need to ask yourself, is this law or is this gospel? The, t- the scripture will indicate it for you. It'll, t- it'll tell you what this is. It'll say things like, except your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never make it into heaven. So it's not saying this message that I'm telling you is good news. No, it's saying this message is law, which is to condemn you, to show you that you are not righteous and you do not have the way of salvation within you. Once you understand this, it radically changes your Bible reading. It changes your Bible study. It changes the way you interact with Scripture. If you were to ever preach or teach or share the gospel, it dramatically changes the way you do that as well. And frankly, until you can do that, until you understand the law gospel distinction, I don't think a person should be preaching because they're not actually preaching the gospel if they don't understand the distinction between the law and the gospel. So understanding the difference between what God does and what we do has massive implications in every area of our lives. The relationship between God's works and ours. If that's confusing in your mind, it's going to have enormous consequences in your life. For example, 
if you don't understand law gospel distinction, you, you are not going to understand that good works are the result of your salvation, not the cause of your salvation. And as simple as that sounds, there's still a lot of confusion within the Reformed camp, especially by the time it gets to the pew, because a lot of preachers are hazy on this issue, and so their preaching is self-contradictory, and then the people in the pew are caught up in this confusion. Now let's move forward. Our next point is active and passive obedience. So Romans 5 is your key text on this. If I were to ask you, where do we find active and passive obedience described in the Bible? I would hope that you all say Romans 5. Well, what is in Romans 5? Well, it's federal headship. What is that? Well, there's two federal heads. There's two representative heads of the human race, and those two are Adam and Christ. There are two races of people. There's a lot of sloppy talk about this on in Christian, like Reformed Christian Twitter. Like people who call themselves confessional but have never actually read their confession, they're like, oh, there's only one race. It's the human race. Well, according to our confession, there's two. And it's those in Adam and those in Christ. And if you don't understand that, then you're either caught up in simplistic, sloppy thinking, or you end up following certain people into ethnocentric, racist theology. There are two races of people. Those races are Adam and Christ. Adam sinned as our representative, and Christ was perfect as our representative. The statement that where Adam failed, Christ prevailed is essential to understand what we're talking about. Um, A key passage on this is Luke 3, 23 through 37. Luke 3, 23 through 37, there it is. Um, This is the genealogy of Jesus. So you might wonder, what's the point of genealogies? We're reading through them on Sunday mornings in Genesis. Well, Jesus' genealogies, there's there's two of them, uh, um, the line through Joseph and the line through Mary. Uh, This one from Luke 3 is helpful for us because it traces um, Jesus' genealogy back to Adam, and it uses the expression, the son of Adam, the son of God. Now, what happens following that? That's the end of Luke chapter 3. But the beginning of Luke chapter 4 is Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. So what the reader should understand through this is that Luke, the author, is making a theological point, which is Adam, the son of God, who sinned in the garden, he failed He faced the temptation of Satan in the garden, surrounded by perfection in the best of all circumstances, with a superabundance of food, with the most perfect companion who ever lived, and he still sinned. So that's what's supposed to come to your mind when you're reading through this genealogy and it says, the son of Adam, the son of God. And you're like, wow, Adam really screwed up and he had everything going for him. But now let's read this story about Jesus. Jesus being in the wilderness, being led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, not in a garden, but in the wilderness. And how does Jesus face this temptation? How does he overcome it? So that's an example, a biblical example of this federal headship. This brings us, we need to move Uh, because we have a lot of things to say. Uh, Our next point is the five solas. Five solas are helpful for understanding salvation. We have, first off, sola scriptura, which means scripture alone is authoritative over tradition of man and human opinion. 
please remember that the five solas are set in the context of the Protestant Reformation. So when you think about the five solas, you should think, well, what is the opposite of that? And how does the Roman Catholic Church demonstrate the opposite of that? So it's not scripture alone, it's scripture plus tradition are authoritative. Or, well, we've always done it this way. And because we've done it this way, it's the right way. Problem is, you could say, well, which tradition? Which teacher? Which pope? Which edict? So we need to have all of our theology, all of our practices bound by the word of God. As Luther said, my conscience is bound by the word of God. The second is sola gratia, or grace alone. Salvation is by grace alone, not grace plus works. Thirdly, salvation is sola fide, by faith alone. Not through a series of of steps or actions you must take, not through um, perfection or or through your own moral righteousness, but through believing in Jesus, the righteous one. Fourthly, it's through Christ alone, solus Christus. What does that mean? Well, that's in contrast to the idea that there are other mediators. For example, Mary. You don't have to pray to Mary to be saved. You don't have to pray to other saints in order to be saved. You you gain access to God through Christ alone. And then all of this is soli deo gloria, which means to the, for the glory of God alone, unto the glory of God alone. If you spend any time in... Um, um, the Vatican, you walk around and you see gold everywhere and you see the, the palatial luxury of the place and you're like, wow, there's a lot of glory for man here. But this fifth point, fifth point reminds us that it is for the glory of God alone that Christ has saved us. This brings us next into the five points of Calvinism. Again, this is an overview fashion, not a deep dive into any of these particular things. But I would like every Christian to have heard of these things and then as a launching point, be able to dig in deeper into these things. So we have the five points of Calvinism. This is also known as TULIP. T-U-L-I-P, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. Total depravity. Most of these terms are complete misnomers, and they don't mean what you think they mean because language changes over 500 years. When we say total depravity, we do not mean that you're as bad as you could be. We do not mean that um, uh, absolute depravity, but we mean that the totality of your being Every part of you has been impacted by sin. Your mind, your will, your emotions, your body, your soul, your spirit. Further, the world is also impacted by this. Creation has been impacted by sin. All people are sinners, and there is none righteous, not even one. Beyond that, the Bible teaches us that we are born dead in our sins. We are not simply sick or wounded, though we are sick and wounded, we're dead and sick and wounded. We are like zombies. We're dead, but we're walking around. But there's also flies swarming over us because we have these horrible diseases and we have, we have a stench about us in our lostness. There are lots of metaphors stacked on top of each other that the Bible uses to describe man's natural condition. So point one, total depravity. Point two, unconditional election. The other 
the other option would be conditional election. So these five points of Calvinism are standing as opposed to the five points of, or the articles of remonstrance, which were the Arminian doctrines, which were um, coined by the followers of Jacob Arminius. The five points of Calvinism were put forward by the followers of John Calvin after his death. So we have conditional election versus unconditional election. The Arminians said that God chooses us as a response to our choice of him. The Calvinist says, no, God chooses us first. He chooses us before the foundation of the world. And it has nothing to do with our good deeds or our virtue or our choice of him, but rather we love him because he first loved us, that we were chosen before the foundation of the world. That's the type of thought process that the Calvinist believes. They believe in unconditional election. Now, the third point, limited atonement. This is perhaps the most misunderstood. Limited atonement does not mean that the atonement of Christ is limited in its power. It means it is particularly intended in its intent for a specific people. So that's the reason why most people, well, that's the reason why many theologians will substitute the word for something else. They might say particular redemption or definite atonement. That when Jesus died on the cross, he died for a specific set of people. He he died for names and faces, fingerprints. He died for Jack Whalen. He died for these billions of people throughout the history of the world who would be saved. And so if you consider a credit card analogy, he swipes the credit card for particular objects that he is purchasing. Now, because he died 2,000 years ago, that payment was made 2,000 years ago. It's not being made today. It was already made. The purchase was already paid for, and he paid for all those who would ever be saved, all those who would ever believe on him. Now, how does that work? I'm glad that you're creative in your thinking. You're not the first person to ever ask that question. The fact that you have that question in your mind does not mean that it's a problem in the mind of God. So don't be so prideful to think that because you can raise a question about how this could work, that that means you've stumped God and that you've got a better plan than what is clearly taught for, by, taught for us by God in the Bible. We know that Christ's payment was made once for all 2,000 years ago. All people who would ever be saved were paid for then, not now. Fourthly, irresistible grace. Irresistible grace does not mean you cannot resist it. It means you resist and resist and resist until God overcomes your resistance. He changes your heart. So the the word effectual call is tied to irresistible grace. God effectually or effectively calls you and draws you savingly unto himself if you are one of the elect. All people are totally depraved. Some people are unconditionally elected. Those people who are unconditionally elected are atoned for in a definite particular way by Jesus. All who are elected are atoned for and all who are atoned for will be irresistibly drawn to Christ by the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel. And all of these people, the elect, will then persevere So we have, fifthly, the perseverance of the saints. What does that mean? That means they will continue in the faith. They will continue believing. But perseverance of the saints also is sometimes called the preservation of the saints. 
Sure, you're continuing in the faith, but you're continuing in the faith because God has preserved you in the faith. He has been the one who has laid hold of you and kept you. So we have the five points of Calvinism. Much more can be said about each of these, but we will continue moving. Next, we have ordo salutis. So we have the order of salvation. That's what that word means. Again, just trying to expose you to all of these different topics so that you've heard of them before. Ordo salutis. What is the order of operations by which God has chosen to save us? This order of salvation is also primarily a logical order or an order that is revealed to us in Scripture, though in Scripture we see sometimes different orders depending on what the purpose or intent of the writer is in that given passage. But the order of salvation in their logical sequence is first foreknowledge. What is foreknowledge? Well, the word knowledge in the Bible is typically used in terms of intimate relational knowledge that would be synonymous with love. So Adam knew his wife and she bore a son. That's the verbiage that's used typically. So this word foreknowledge means foreloved, that God loved a particular set of people, particular names and faces before they existed. You read about this in Romans chapter 8. Those whom he foreknew, he elected, he predestined. Those who are predestined are called. They're effectually called. After effectual calling, because there's the general call and the effectual call, the effectual call is the one that actually grips you and grabs you and brings you savingly to him. The general call is the one that just whizzes over your head and you're like, oh, that's nice, but I don't, 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 don't care. The effectual call is the one that takes root. By the way, if you were to ask, what's the difference between election and predestination? Well, they're two different words, uh, but they're basically the same concept. Um, you read about them in Ephesians chapter 1. Effectual calling, regeneration. Regeneration is synonymous with the new birth, being born again. Now, the difference between Reformed people and dispensational people is their order between regeneration and faith. The covenant theologian or the Reformed person would believe that regeneration precedes faith, and the dispensationalist or the Arminian would believe that faith precedes regeneration. So what does that mean? You first believe, and then you are regenerated. The Reformed person says, no, you're dead in your sins, and he makes you alive, then he grants you faith. Now, is this a matter of semantics? Yes and no. It's a matter of semantics in that it's There are no people running around this world who have been regenerated who have not yet believed. If you believe, you have been regenerated, and if you have been regenerated, you believe because these things happen instantaneously. That doesn't mean that the entire process of salvation happens instantaneously. No, I don't think so. I think that the normal person hears the gospel many, many times, repeated exposure to the gospel, and over this course of time, they are convicted of their sin. They experience what some call an initial awakening, or they they experience um, sorrow over their sin, and then they start to believe, and, and this is an elongated process. That is what Peter Masters Uh, The pastor of Spurgeon's church today, he has uh, written a book on this, uh, and he calls it the elongated view and demonstrates how it was the normal view across church history up until about the 1950s, where we 
Reform, American Reform Christianity became hyper-Calvinist and they adopted the all-at-once view where basically you, you have this person being zapped from darkness to light in the moment of salvation. And if the person doesn't believe when you first tell them the gospel, then, well, I guess they're not elect, so let's move on. And then it has removed the role of the, the evangelist or the soul winner because they just go out and street preach. And then if people are not suddenly strick, stricken with the spirit and fall down saved, then I guess they're not elect. So we just move on. And that is a very hyper-Calvinist way of thinking. And that's thanks to John Murray's book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. Apparently he was kind of the first one to um, promote this all at once view. But that's the subject of another talk. After regeneration is conversion. After conversion is justification. Uh, justification means to be legally declared right with God, to be to receive the imputed righteousness of Christ. Um, the doctrine of justification is the, the doctrine which is the hinge on which the church uh, rises or falls, according to Luther. Um, after that, we have adoption, where you are brought into the family of God. After that is sanctification. And then there's preservation, perseverance, and glorification. Um, this list here is in their logical order. Um, if you were to ask me, well, what about why is conversion right there instead of regeneration or conversion instead of justification or adoption instead of justification? These are all happening at the same time, basically. Conversion, justification, adoption. And sanctification is the one that, that is spread out through the course of the Christian's life. Now, uh, let's move forward. See, we have assurance of salvation. Uh, first, we have false converts. We need to talk about this because it's a real thing. Uh, the reality of false converts. We see in Matthew chapter 7, a very famous passage, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruit. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So there is a reality of false converts. There are people who uh, Simon, the sorcerer in the book of Acts, believes and is baptized and then goes to hell. What's up with that? Well, there's people who like Hebrews 6 describe who've tasted of the heavenly vision and then they renounce it. We all know them. We've all encountered people like this. Um, my simplistic answer for why is this addressed, why is this a thing in the Bible, uh, is that, well, it's a thing in real life. So the Bible <laughs> gives us scripture to, to help us understand that. And then you say, well, we believe in the perseverance of the saints. Yes, we do. So what's the problem here? Well, the problem is people claim to be Christians and then they fall away. They claim to be Christians and then they renounce it. They were once a Christian, but now they're not a Christian. Well, they weren't actually a Christian, but they seemed like it at the time. Think of uh, Joshua Harris, the guy who wrote the book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. He's preaching to thousands of people as like a 20-year-old, preaching the true gospel, preaching in conferences, pastoring a mega church in Maryland. You know, some of the songs we sing today, Come Praise and Glorify, Come Praise and Glorify is a Sovereign Grace song. Joshua Harris was the lead pastor of the Sovereign Grace 
Ministries Church. It was the flagship church of that denomination, previously pastored by C.J. Mahaney. C.J. Mahaney says, hey, I'm going to step down and make you my my follower. You're, you're going to be the next the next C.J. Mahaney, the next John MacArthur, the next big name, prominent megachurch pastor. And so they did that. This man was made as a, a prominent megachurch pastor. And then he started deconstructing and went down, 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 went off to seminary and then became a liberal and then renounced his liberal Christianity for just heathenism. And um, that's, that's where he's at today. Um. <laughs> So we have false converts taught uh, addressed in scripture, but we also experience this in our own lives. We know people like this. Um, sheltering your kids, protecting them from the world, sending them to Bob Jones. Uh, these kinds of things do not protect and preserve. Like I, The number of ministry students that I went to Bible college with, uh, well, let's just say freshman year, there was about 100 in our class. By the time we graduated, there were about 25. Now, I'm not saying that 75 of them left the faith, but... Um, there was a big, you know, 75% fallout rate. And then of those 25 who graduated still being interested in ministry, about 15 of them went on to seminary. And so the 10 just kind of went to work at Chick-fil-A or something, uh, which is its own ministry. And (laughs) then um, of those 15, they say, um, you know, only a fraction of those 15 will actually get into a ministry job in the first place. And then a small percentage of those will finish the race that is set before them still in ministry, still as a pastor. And I think that percentage is like 15%. So of those 15, you're looking at maybe like, what, three that will end well. So that's about a 3% rate, three out of like 100. Um, We need to talk next about the ground of your assurance. So um, how do you know you're saved? How do you know if you're a believer? Um, The the strongest, most powerful grounds of assurance is the objective finished work of Christ, taking hold of Christ, or rather being taken hold of by Christ. What you find as you go on in your Christian life is that the Jesus of the Bible is the one who's holding fast to his people. You might think, oh, I'm holding on to him. But then stuff starts happening. And your life turns upside down. And thing after thing after thing hits you, and you realize, like, oh, I didn't sign up for this. I didn't expect this. Whether it's some sort of chronic health problem or some family issue or some personal thing happens, there's job problems, or just the worst possible thing you could have prayed that God would not allow to happen happens to you and you find yourself questioning God and you're like, God, why is this happening? You know that this is the one thing that mattered to me. And you find your faith shaken and you find yourself saying, well, I don't have the will to go on. I don't have it within me to continue to believe. And that may be true. But if you are one of God's children, he will hold you fast. He will hold on to you even when you don't have the strength to hold on to him. Why is that? How does that work? Well, now that I'm a dad and I have a little child, um, comparing his hand strength to my hand strength, there's just there's a significant difference between them. Now, sure, his hands are stronger than they used to be, but they're still not strong as what he needs. And there are times that he falls. 
But what keeps him from hitting the ground, if he is kept from hitting the ground, is not going to be his hand strength, but it's the hand strength of whoever catches him. Whatever adult it is who grabs him on his way down. And it's sort of like that in the Christian life. When we don't have the strength to continue to hold on, we who are God's people are held by Christ. And I, I can personally testify to having experienced this in some of the darkest moments of the last couple of years, is that when I didn't have it within me to continue, I felt as though God was with me holding me up. So, what is saving faith? When we look at ourselves for evidence of conversion, what should we look for? I would recommend not looking at ourselves in saving faith. Look to Christ instead. But there are verses that do tell us to examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. What does that need to look like? Well, Mike Abendroth has written a great book on this titled Gospel Assurance. Um, Shortly after it came out and it was widely known amongst our church, people were like, oh, well, I need a book on assurance. I'm like, well, here's one. We just talked about it last week. Um, Gospel Assurance. It's got some great stuff in it. So here I'm about to read a bunch of quotes to you. So if I forget to say close quote or whatever, the next six large paragraphs are from this book. If you interrogate yourself with questions like, do I love God or do I love my neighbor? You'd better soften this question so that they sound more like this. Do I want to love God? Am I sorry when I do not love God? Do I wish that I loved God more? The desire of every Christian is to love God, but Christians fall short. Yes, even Christians sin. Christians repent. Since this section is all about asking questions, how about this one? Quote, who gave you the desire to love God? Close quote. The answer is the Holy Spirit himself, which demonstrates that you are a Christian. The common denominator in the questions posed in the last paragraph is that they are all law questions. Law requires doing. It requires action, your action, your obedience. There's nothing wrong with God's law because it is holy and good, but the law should force you to keep searching. In other words, it should spur you on to look for some good news for lawbreakers, i.e. the gospel. The gospel is what The triune God has done for lawbreakers. It is all God's doing. It is completely God's action, one which would offer the best assurance. Which one would offer the best assurance? Your law-keeping or God's saving work in his son? Neither the law nor your obedience offers a ground of assurance. Should we love Jesus? Yes. Must we love Jesus? Yes. Will we, by the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, love Jesus more and more? Of course. But Christians need to rest in the Son of God who perfectly fulfilled the law of God for us. Ready for some more conviction? How's your quiet time today? Did you read your Bible enough today? When was the last time you preached the gospel to someone? Have you been self-sacrificial in your love for others? And now for the most convicting question, how's your prayer life? This last month, this last week, or today? All of these law questions are appropriate in their place, but their place is never first place and they should never be the ground of salvation. John Calvin is again instructive, writing, quote, the conscience of believers and seeking assurance of their justification before God should rise out of and advance beyond the law, forgetting all righteousness, 
For there, the question is not how we may become righteous, but how being unrighteous and unworthy, we may be reckoned righteous Uh, If conscience wishes to attain any certainty in this matter, they ought to give no place to the law. Nor can anyone rightly infer from this that the law is superfluous for believers, since it does not stop teaching and exhorting and urging them to do good, even though before God's judgment seat, it has no place in their consciences. Close quote. Ready for some encouragement? Jesus read and studied the Old Testament enough. Jesus preached the gospel enough. Jesus sacrificed for his family and friends and enemies enough. Jesus prayed enough. His prayer life was perfect. Jesus said it is finished. Jesus is enough and did enough. Remember, Jesus obeyed for others, not himself. Jesus, his resurrection demonstrated that God was fully satisfied and that Jesus was who he claimed to be. As just Jeff Thomas says in his uh, newsletter, which he sends out every now and then, uh, there, there were two different books titled What is Saving Faith? One was written by someone who he, he endorsed the book, and the other was written by a guy named John Piper, and he did not endorse that book. And uh, in Piper's book, he says that saving faith is this satisfaction in God. And then Jeff Thomas says, but what if I'm not satisfied enough? Is God looking at me to determine if I'm satisfied enough with his satisfaction with his son? No, that's not how this works. I'm saved because God the Father is satisfied with his son, Jesus Christ, not because I'm satisfied with his satisfaction of his son. There's a distinction there. Another quote, what Horatius Bonner wrote in his book called God's Way of Holiness perfectly applied to the assurance of salvation. He said, the secret of a believer's holy walk is his continual recurrence to the blood of the surety and his daily communion with a crucified and risen Lord. All divine life and all precious fruits of it, pardon, peace, and holiness spring from the cross. All fancied sanctification, which does not arise wholly from the blood of the cross, is nothing better than Phariseeism. In other words, if you are muscling up your way into holiness, and you're doing that outside of the power of the cross, that's just being a Pharisee. If we would be holy, we must get to the cross and dwell there, else notwithstanding all our labor, diligence, fasting, prayer, and good works, we shall be yet void of real sanctification, destitute of those humble, gracious tempers which accompany a clear view of the cross. Have you guys, I don't know if they're still on TV with like TLC, but these reality shows about Amish people, is this a thing? What you find in these outwardly moral people is that actually behind this exterior is rank ungodliness, hatred amongst each other, the most vile and profane mouths all flowing out of their hearts. But they're keeping the rules and they're riding their horses and having their little buggies and not using electricity. But they're total heathens. They're no more holy, no more godly than the most ungodly person you'd meet in New York City who uses electricity and drives cars. Now let's keep moving. Um, Evangelism. So there's a few methods. How do you share the gospel? Well, EE. Do you know what EE? Raise your hand if you know what EE is. What is it? 
Perfect. Evangelism Explosion. So Evangelism Explosion is an evangelistic program that was developed by a guy named D. James, D. James Kennedy in South Florida decades ago. It's a green book that's about as thick as my Bible, and it's a good bit bigger than my Bible. Evangelism is, Explosion is, a, I think, a, a good thing. It's a good method. If you see it, that book for sale at um, like a thrift store or something, it's, it's a helpful thing to pick up. Uh, it has a set of questions such as, if you died today and were to stand before God and he asked you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? So you take out your EE script and you go out and ask people on the streets, if you were to stand before God and he asked you why I should let you into heaven, what would you say? And then they respond and then you go through this, this EE program. Uh, it's not a bad thing. I, I kind of like it. Um, after that, there's also the 10 commandments. Um, so if you know of Way of the Master, you've heard of Ray Comfort. He has um, popularized this method of sharing the gospel using the law, using the Ten Commandments. So um, walking through the Ten Commandments and saying, have you ever told a lie? Have you ever stolen? Have you ever? Now, this is all law. We haven't gotten to gospel yet. But what he's doing is he's using the law to bring about conviction of sin. And that's necessary because if a person is, doesn't recognize that they're lost, they can't see the significance or need of Christ. So, yeah. So you can look at his um, YouTube channel called Way of the Master. They've got, he's got over a million followers, like 1.5 million. Um, you can see lots of videos on there. Uh, thirdly, or fourth or whatever, we have apologetics. There's two large categories of those, which would be number one, classical or evidentialism. Technically, there's a distinction between the two, but the distinction is irrelevant. And then the next is presuppositionalism. So uh, for classicalism, you've got names like R.C. Sproul. And for presuppositionalism, uh, you have a lot of other people. And so today, presuppers want to act like they're the only kids on the block. They're not. Um, they're not the only people who have true things to say. Um, I think that the best approach is to take from both, to take from both classicalism and evidentialism and uh, scripture-focused approach, which would be presup. Presup is where you just ask the person by what standard, by what standard, until they cry. And then you tell them about Jesus. Um, I don't know if anyone who's ever gotten saved from that method, but I know lots of people have gotten angry and cursed at us and stormed away. Um, but yeah, of course, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So we should preach the gospel, but I do think that it is helpful to use um, arguments from creation, arguments from the world around us, because the heavens do declare the glory of God, and that might actually be an evidentialist approach. So I think that it's helpful to, to have both in our toolbox. Um, Next is the free offer of salvation, free offer of the gospel, and I wrote slash fullerism. Fullerism is a word that is not widely known, and I would like to personally popularize it. My article that was going to come out in the Daily Wire before Ben Zeisloff got fired discussed fullerism, and fullerism is basically Spurgeonism. If Charles Spurgeon were to start his own denomination, it would be called Fullerism because it was from the teaching of Andrew Fuller, who was sort of the brain behind Charles Spurgeon's theology. So what is Fullerism or what is Spurgeonism? Well, it would be a evangelistic Calvinist Baptist. Um, to, to you today, that might sound perfectly logical and normal, but in the 1850s, it was unusual. In the 1850s, most Calvinistic Baptists were hyper-Calvinists. 
And that's where Andrew Fuller comes in, who I think it was him, it was either him or and, uh, William Carey, but he writes this this booklet called A, a Gospel Worthy of All Acceptation or something. Um, basically, the idea that the gospel needs to be accepted by everybody, that everybody is is under obligation to believe. Not just the elect, but all people have a duty an obligation to come to Christ, to believe on him, and that we should preach the gospel to all people. Now, Andrew Fuller was one of the men who stood behind William, William Carey, who's the father of modern missions. So he was one of the ones who sent William Carey. As far as money goes, fundraising, networking, promotion, he was one of the guys standing behind him and saying, hey, we will help you. We will make this a thing. Uh, William Carey, being the father of modern missions, was a missionary in, in India, um, uh, some 200 years ago. Now, um, Fullerism, free offer of, of salvation, rejection of hyper-Calvinism. I have a lot of notes here and not a lot of time. So how many slides do we have left? Uh, like four slides left. Okay, so let's, let's spend a little bit of time on the free offer of the gospel. So hyper-Calvinism makes wrong conclusions based on true statements. So you take things that are true, but then make wrong logical conclusions based on that. Uh, it is true that Jesus died particularly for his elect, but the hyper-Calvinist makes a faulty conclusion that on that basis, there is no grounds for freely preaching the gospel to all people, because doing so will certainly involve preaching the gospel to people who are not elect. And by definition, these are people that were not atoned for by Jesus. So we shouldn't preach to them because we might tell them Jesus died for you and he didn't, in fact, die for that person. Because we don't know if Jesus died for you. So by this logic, one could attempt to come to Christ but find themselves turned away because there wasn't enough blood payment on behalf from Jesus to pay for their sins. So the result of this hyper-Calvinistic evangelism, uh, they never lead anyone to Christ. It is fearful that someone may perhaps get saved the sad thing is that today much of what passes for Calvinistic preaching is actually hyper-Calvinistic preaching, and that if we are to truly follow in the footsteps of our Calvinistic forefathers, we need to embrace the call and the opportunity to preach the gospel freely to all. One issue that may come up is the idea of preparationism. Preparationism is the idea that a person cannot simply come to Christ as they are, but rather they must be preparing first. They must be sorrowful enough. They must have a lengthy time of sadness and grief and self-examination. But this is not what God calls us to do. Instead, he calls us in response to the question, what must I do to be saved? He doesn't say, well, go home and mourn for a month first. No, he says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. The one who views their sadness and sorrow as gaining them access to God or providing grounds of acceptance before God has placed something else ahead of Christ in their mind and heart. You do not come to Christ on the basis of your sorrow. That's the reason why we sing, one of the reasons why we sing that song, Not In Me. No tearful song, no recitation of the truth can earn myself a place with you. My righteousness is Jesus Christ. You know the song, Rock of Ages, it addresses this powerfully. It says, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All, all of these things for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. 
John McLeod says he just died like two weeks ago. He's a Scottish theologian and he wrote a book. Uh, it's, it's like the book on Christology. So if I ever, if you've ever asked me, Andy, what's the best book on Christology? And I say, Don McLeod's book about Jesus and you went and bought it, then you have this on your shelf. Don McLeod says on page 32 of his book called Compel Them to Come In, quote, it is only the smitten conscience that will seek peace through Christ. Then the preacher must smite the conscience. This is what the old divines spoke of as law work. But the most probing and searching of all preachers was the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He placed our lives in the full glare of the law when he declared that unless our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, we shall never enter the kingdom of heaven. Quote, we don't have two separate forms of the gospel, one for the elect and one for the reprobate. We have one gospel with one very specific address, quote, to sinners, close quote. And by the same token, it is the fact that he is a sinner, not the fact that he is elect, that gives the sinner the right to come to believe in all of its glorious promises are for him. So the sinner hearing the message of the gospel doesn't have reason for coming because he's confident he's elect. No, he, he comes to Christ because he's confident he's a sinner. And that's the only thing that the person should be concerned with. So if you ever find a unbeliever who's a Calvinist on the streets who's like, well, I'm not sure if I'm elect or not, but I believe in election, but I don't know if I believe in Jesus. You should, don't actually smack him, but you should instruct him with these words, which might hit him like a cup of cold water that says, your concern should not be whether or not you're elect. It should be whether or not you're a sinner. And if you're a sinner, that's all the question you need to to worry about whether or not you should come to Christ. Don McLeod goes on, a few Sundays ago, I sat in a church uh, in church listening to the announcements before the service. I learned that there was to be a congregational outing. It promised to be a great day and the minister stressed that all were welcome. But then it occurred to me, how many of those who have heard this invitation are going to say, I would love to go, but I don't know if I'm one of those predestined to go. No, I concluded it's only one confronted by the gospel that, that people seem to raise this sort of argument. We never seem to ask whether it has been ordained for us that we should get up in the morning or whether it has been ordained for us that we should go to work or whether we should go to the World Cup final. We simply get up and go. He goes on to say, um, what all this means is that by holding up Christ, not by analyzing faith, it is by holding up Christ, not by analyzing faith that people are drawn to their Savior. And this in turn means that There can be no call to faith apart from theology, or more precisely, apart from Christology. I've seen preachers who believed with all their hearts that Christ was to be offered freely to all, but they hold back on it because they know that in their congregation there were some who pride themselves on being discerning and being discernment ministry, and they frown on preachers who were too free with the gospel. It might be a fellow minister or a censorious elder or the sort of Christian, perhaps even a recent convert, who goes to church not to hear the gospel, but to hear if you have the gospel. We have to be absolutely clear in our response to this. The free offer of the gospel is not some minor doctrine which may be sacrificed for the sake of peace or suppressed in order to protect some more other important doctrine. No doctrine is more important than the free offer of the gospel. He goes on. Every properly educated preacher should know that far from being a threat to Calvinism, the free offer at its very heart as the Synod of Dort made plain. And the Synod of Dort is where they invented Calvinism, for lack of a better way to say it. The Synod of Dort made this plain, and every Calvinist has to ask himself this question. Who is more important, that well-known sermon taster 
straining to catch the faintest whiff of Arminianism, or that poor sinner whose eternal well-being depends on him being introduced to Christ. This is why Thomas Chalmers once remarked that it was less important to protect such doctrines as predestination and limited atonement than it was to guard against the abuse of them. Close quote. Now let's talk quickly about the marrow controversy. I have a lot of things here about this and not time to get into them. So we'll read what's on the screen. Uh, in the year 1700, Thomas Boston discovers Edward Fisher's book called Marrow of Modern Divinity, which was written some 40 or 60 years earlier. Uh, he has it reprinted 18 years after that. So he like puts it on a shelf and then discovers it 18 years later. And um, this book, Marrow of Modern Divinity, uh, is very important. And in it, it has this Octorarder Creed, which Octorarder Creed is one of my favorite words. That creed goes like this. It is not sound and orthodox to teach that we must forsake sin in order to our coming to Christ. Uh, there's this whole controversy about whether or not that statement is true. And then the Church of Scotland had this, this debate and kind of a split over whether or not the Octorarder Creed is true. But the Marrow men said this is true. It is true that it is not sound and orthodox to teach that we must forsake sin in order to our coming to Christ. But Thomas Boston said this is poorly worded, but it is true. What does this mean? This means you don't have to get your act together before you become a Christian. You just come to Christ as you are. As the song says, just as I am. The Neonomians, so you got the Merriman on one side and the Neonomians on the other. They were the ones who held the gospel as a new law, Neonamas, replacing the Old Testament law with the legal conditions of faith and repentance needing to be met before salvation can be offered. The problem is repentance and faith are not the grounds of your acceptance before God. Repentance and faith are not the work that you do in order to be saved. The work done for you to be saved is Jesus dying for your, for your sins. He's the only one who earns salvation and he, do, he does it through his work on the cross. You don't do it through your believing. You can go to the next slide. Um, so the question is, must a person forsake his sin in order to come to Christ? The Merriman said, grace precedes faith and repentance. The Neonomian said, someone's penitence would merit God's grace and forgiveness. So the Neonomians, the new law people, they would say, well, you earn God's grace by being repentant. The Merriman said, no, grace comes first. Question two, is the gospel to be freely offered to all or only to those who show signs of being elect? By the way, the book from Don McLeod, Compel Them to Come In, references the marrow controversy repeatedly, and the marrow controversy is very important for all these things, even though it might seem obscure. Um, the Merriman said, no, the universal atonement, they said, no universal atonement, yet there is a warrant to offer Christ to all of mankind. So they're, they're Calvinists, but they believe that there is a reason, there is a call to preach Christ to anyone and everyone. Um, the Neonomians said you should give a conditional offer of the gospel. In other words, if you have sufficiently repented, then you may receive grace. Whereas the Merrowmen would just say, hey, I'm here to preach Christ today. I'm here to tell you about Jesus, the Savior of sinners. And if you come to him, you will not be turned away. So if you want to hear the difference between these two, compare a Spurgeon sermon with much of modern stuffy reformed preaching. Carry on. Number three, how can Orthodox Christians uh, wind up with a legal spirit? How can they end up being legalists about these things? Well, the neonomians called the Merrow men 
antinomian. The Merriman said the neonomians were legalists. Uh, the neonomians had mastered the pattern by which grace works, yet they had never been mastered by the grace of God and the gospel in their hearts. They were masters of Calvinism who had never been mastered by God's grace. Now, is this the last slide? This is the last slide. So uh, I have a very um, interesting article on the Mara controversy from Monergism. If you would like it, I can send it to you, or you can just type in Monergism Mara controversy on Google, and it should be the first thing that pops up. It is 9.07, so let's pray, and we'll be done. If you have any questions, you can come up to me at the end, but we don't want to hold everybody else up for that. Father, thank you for your instruction to us on the gospel. What is a believer? What is saving faith? The grounds of assurance. I pray that you would help us, that we would not view our behavior as that thing which gives us acceptance before God, but rather that we would lift up Christ for in him we have salvation. I pray that these things would be helpful for your people. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.